This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today is April 12th, 2012, and our guest is Ashoka executive Beverly Schwartz. Beverly is the author of a brand new book entitled Rippling, How Social Entrepreneurs Spread Innovation Around the World. Beverly is Ashoka's vice president of global marketing. She joined Ashoka from Fleischmann Hillard International Communications, where she created and managed their social issues portfolio. Bev is a behavioral scientist and a social marketing expert. She has many systems-changing innovations to her credit. In Minnesota, she helped write and pass the nation's first state law regulating smoking in public places. She helped to design and manage the first National America Response to AIDS campaign. She's the author of the first Surgeon General's report on HIV-AIDS for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. And she's also worked on gender and education reform issues while at the uh, Academy for Educational Development. Beverly has a master's and a bachelor's degree from the City University of New York, Queens College, and is a trustee of the National Hospice Foundation. And on top of that, Beverly is an avid scuba diver, which means that she loves an adventure. <laughs> Beverly, it's a real honor to be able to talk with you today. I've, I've been looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, David. I'm, I'm pleased to be here with you. I also want to congratulate you on this remarkable book uh, that you've finished and published about social entrepreneurship, Rippling. And I'd like to ask you to begin by talking a bit about your motivation to write the book. And I find a very key quote here from Buddha included in your prologue says, an idea that is developed and put into action is more important than an idea that exists only as an idea. And then there's also this great quote that you have from Nietzsche, uh, he who has a why to love for can bear almost any how. So I know this book is an idea that has been put into action, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and um, I, may I just uh, correct, um, Nietzsche would love me to correct that it was he who has a wife to live for. You actually said love for her. Uh, well, which, love which for is, actually, maybe just I love it as well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's almost better. Yes. But I just wanted to do him a little sure. honor by sure. his exact words. Thank you. Um, no, no, no. So uh, some of that applies to me and some of that applies to others. So, so you know, um, the Buddha quote was really something that was my original motivation um, was because I have been at Ashoka for eight years and have um, watched the organization grow and I have gotten close to many of the fellows and have followed many of their innovations and when I looked at the motivation for my coming to Ashoka, um, I realized that there was so many wonderful things going on and so many fabulous people involved in the organization um, that um, somebody had to tell the story. And I, I really didn't think we had done that yet at Ashoka. Um, there were not enough stories that people could really relate to. Uh, and I felt that if I wrote the book, which is something, again, I've always wanted to, I wanted to do for a long time. And then I finally said, I can do this. Um, I know I can do this. If I'm thinking other people can do 
fabulous things in the world. I can do this too. Um, and just to mention, this is my first book. So uh, though I have written a lot of other things in my life and recently uh, did a chapter on social entrepreneurship and public health through a uh, basically a textbook, I just never thought I could do this, but I was propelled because I said, if I don't do it now, when will I do it? And there is too many great stories that people need to understand. And there's too many people there that need to be inspired to make social change that might read the book. Um, it, it just all came together. Um, and, you know, the Nietzsche quote, and actually there's a Viktor Frankl quote that starts the prologue, um, to, was talking to me about... Um, a why to live for is um, to be involved in creating a better world. And um, I just felt like the book was my contribute, another contribution other than working at Ashoka that I can do and that other people can contribute. If I can do it in this way, other people can contribute in that way. It's just wonderful. And I, I have to say the book is just such a service because, it, you know, social entrepreneurship is such an abstract idea for many people. And I think one of the powerful things about the book is the way you have identified real stories that make these ideas come alive and introduced us to the characters who are involved in doing the work. And it just makes for a pageant that brings these ideas to life in a way that's just so compelling. I wonder, one of the things that you do early in the book is you identify these four P's of social entrepreneurship, uh, purpose, passion, pattern, participation. And I think those themes just run all the way through the stories that you tell. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those qualities and how they identify and, and how social entrepreneurs embody those qualities. Well, you know, I, I, I also want to say that I tried not to only put social entrepreneurs in the spotlight in the book, but also the people who work alongside them, to me, are also in that spotlight along with social entrepreneurs. And so I found that though um, the social entrepreneurs had these four qualities, and I'll talk about them in a second, I also found a lot of these qualities um, in the people that worked alongside of the social entrepreneurs, the people that I refer to as change makers. Um, but, but, but it was interesting because after I interviewed the 18 fellows and sort of sat down for my, my, my Beverly Schwartz thinking session with myself, um, it came to me, I, I was trying to look at patterns. I was trying to look at what was jumping out at me that was similar to um, run and running through each of these 18 uh, social entrepreneurs and their projects. And, and these are the four qualities that I came up with that when you know what your purpose in life is and when you are feeling so strong about an injustice or an inequality or, or you're so critical about something that really annoys you, um, you have a purpose. You, you, you formulate a purpose and you persistently follow that purpose. And I found that in every single one of the fellows. Um, enough so that so many of them gave up jobs that they were doing uh, beforehand or, or ways they defined themselves as, oh, I was just a housewife. Oh, I was a security guard. Oh, I was a, a biomedical PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and they had purpose. And that that was that became the guiding star of life, um, and because 
you know, they had such purpose. And I, and I said, I, I don't know if I could really almost unentangle it, but the purpose was fueled by passion. Mm-hmm. And these are passionate people. Um, and they're passionate about having empathy for other people. And they're passionate about knowing that the world can be better and that they can be a lever for a better world and a more compassionate world. And and all of them start to see the way the world is connected and the way their community is connected or it's not connected. And they start to develop these sort of processes, which I call their patterns, um, of the way they work in the world. Um, and though they were all different, they all had an interesting rhythm to their programs and a pattern of how they work with people, how they saw the community, and how they wanted to grow the innovation. Um, And participation was huge. I mean, every single one of them that I interviewed, and and though I will admit they were self-selected for a number of criteria for the book, they all worked in participation with people in partnership. They all co-created with the community or with the lawyers that, that change policies or the banks that they were trying to get to come into um, slum areas to you know make a vibrant economy. They all sat down and understood the value of mutual, mutual value and, and co-creation. And that was something that really hit me when I when I interviewed the fellows, that they just didn't do this in a vacuum. They didn't have an idea and try to implement it, but they had an idea and they started to talk about it with the people they wanted to work with in the community and the community that they wanted it to succeed in. I have to say you did a great job in that analysis because in being an, uh, an Ashoka fellow myself and doing right. some of this work, I related so strongly to all of those themes and as and even in the in the way that you've organized looking at the work of these fellows again with each theme that you introduced I kept thinking wow this p- picks up so much of things that I've done in my life so I think you did a terrific job of analyzing this material and pulling out the core strands that are really there well well wait thank you I I find that very I'm very honored that you said that and I'm really happy that that as a fellow you found that worked for you and then that makes me feel like I really did hit it so thank you yeah I'd like to I'd love to dive in and talk a little bit about those themes because I think that's also one of the big contributions of this book I think one of the things that makes this such a difficult subject is that there's so many different arenas in which such people work and change making when you start talking about change making it's so broad and yet you've identified several themes that seem to be organizing principles for thinking about this work uh, restructuring institutional norms changing market dynamics using market forces to create social value advancing full citizenship I love that concept and then of course cultivating empathy where Ashoka is really doing incredible work right now in terms of uniting the work of fellows but I'd love to just take a few minutes and talk about each one of those areas if we could start with the idea of um, restructuring institutional norms uh, something very near and dear to my heart could you tell us a little bit about that and some of the stories we learn there and what they have to teach us 
Sure. Well, I, I have to say that the um, the five sections of the book were actually um, inspired by um, uh, an earlier Ashoka study mm. um, that tried also to summarize the fields, the the fields, sort of the areas that the fellows worked in. And I just took that as a foundation and, and, and kind of took it a step further than that. And so I want I want to give credit where it's due. Sure. But but when I looked at those five sections, I thought it was a really great way to start thinking about what the fellows do and how they work and where it fits into the greater picture. And also, I'm very interested in um, something that I also actually I want to do more thinking of um, now that I finished writing the book. I got very inspired by how the fellows overlap. How did these five sections actually overlap mm -hmm. so that we can put fellows in each section together and build something even bigger than they're individually doing now? Um, and, and so I kind of want to start looking and playing with that as well. But, but given that, um, the restructuring institutional norms is that, you know, institutions, um, it, it's sort of like, Status quo, in a way. So when I, I said to restructure institutional norms, it, it became to me like, okay, there are so many norms in life that become status quo, and a lot of them just don't make sense. Right. In, in this fast-evolving world, mm -hmm. um, you, you need everybody needs to sort of examine if a norm still works and if a norm has purpose or and, it, and it's supportive of of as of of the world as we want to see it, or it's it's actually the opposite right now, and it's creating uh, blocks and barriers to progress. So so I kind of looked at the fellows who were sort of tearing down the walls to um, the way things are. Right. And, and that's sort of what I called restructuring those institutional norms. So it's not about institutions per se, but it's about the whole ballpark of what we call status quo. I so relate to that. I mean, we live in systems that are in many cases just filled with self-inflicted wounds. And I think that the fellows are really focused on how you restructure these systems so that they do what they set out to do and they don't stumble over their own feet. Could you share maybe one story in there that's in the book that uh, illustrates that process? Oh, 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 for sure. I mean, the, the one I love is actually, it's a U.S. store. I mean, I love all of them, I have to say. I'm very attached to all of the fellows now, and I love, it's very hard pressed for me to say which chapter I like more or less. Yeah. Um, but, but the one that really um, kind of blew me away because I hadn't really thought of it so much was um, that Chapter two, the teaching of teaching, which is a U.S. program um, actually based in Washington, D.C. And um, it, it, it's the entire rethinking of not how schools function as much as how teachers are teaching. And it's not about firing teachers because they're bad teachers. It's about giving them the tools to be excellent teachers. And, you know, it's a Aletta Margolis is the name of the fellow. And she said something to me that really made me stop and think. And she said, you know, we, we think if a school system is failing, that it's a teacher's fault and we need to fire them and 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 
uh, and rearrange everything. And, and I called that in, in the chapter heading, I said, rearranging the deck chairs. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, it, it, and you just you just now get a new crop of teachers that aren't well trained and don't know the system and you're back where you started from. And she said, why aren't teachers partners in reform? Why are they the targets of reform? And what we need to do is to, to teach them how to teach differently, how to inspire kids, how how to excite kids, how to um, not have kids memorize things by rote, but by understanding the principles behind them. And, um, you know, there was a passage in the book that I actually read last night. We had the DC book launch and, and, and I read it. And it's basically that when a child runs home to the parents and says, I, I built a bridge and I, fit, I, 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 I figured out the mathematical formula to build the bridge and it's all working. And she, she, the child doesn't say, my teacher helped me or I did it with my teacher. In fact, the child never is supposed to mention the teacher at all. Because the teacher should be close to invisible, right? And uh, and they should be just pushing the child to be creative, to think, to understand, um, and to be present. And um, that sort of gave me a new framing for teaching and schools. Terrific, that's a great. And, and it seemed as easy as that inst- changing that institutional norm that we know of as schools. That's fantastic. Yeah, Aletta's work is amazing. And uh, so that's that's a really terrific example of that thing about restructuring the institution by changing the way the internal rules operate. And Lord knows our school systems are in such a, a state now, they desperately need that kind of work. These two themes about the market I found very compelling, changing market dynamics and also the idea of using market forces to create social value. This is a very fertile area, I think, in social entrepreneurship because we find fellows who are really thinking about market forces in ways that are so innovative. Can you talk about those portions of the book and maybe share some stories? And you were actually really uh, spot on to actually mention them together because it was somewhat difficult for me when I started. I knew there were things different things going on with with markets and social forces and dynamics, but I needed to tease them out so that I actually could understand them in two distinct categories. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll describe that to you. So so changing market dynamics is more about um, just, you know, taking the forces of markets and seeing how you can play with them to to sort of um, come out on the side of social good. And they're sort of dynamics that already exist. Um, right. And so, you know, in, in uh, micro consignment, it's it's a new way of um, taking risk away, but it's a play on a consignment model, which right. exists. Um, in, in, in Dialing Maze 411, uh, 411 actually, um, it's sort of a whole system that already existed in Kenya around selling products, uh, market products, you know, coming to a, a farmer's market, as you would call it, and and selling your product, sitting under a tree and having the buyers come around and just changing the market dynamics around that existing um, place. And, 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 um, and, and the one I love in also in that section is stimulating fiscal vibrancy by creating a new economy from Brazil where um, – there was, you know, the taking of a whole slum area 
and um, figuring out what the market dynamics needed to be to make the slum area economically vibrant by bringing in, you know, how do you bring in a bank so that people don't have to spend their money and retail stores so people don't have to spend their money in an area that has them and then they just live in the slum, but they go out to do their business and they go out to work. Um, and, and so take that market force that you know needs to make a vibrant village or a vibrant city and, and twist it around so that you repopulate um, a slum with stores and bartering and you get to keep the money in the area and grow the area because of that. Um, so these are sort of really innovative takes on dynamics in the market that already exist where using market forces to create social value is, you know, on the other side of the plate um, where you, there are things that um, are done on a, on a normal basis that need to be done like, you know, garbage collection um, or, or, or uh, getting uh, coffee workers better wages or, um, you know, finding places where people can um, use a toilet, uh, uh, which is not in the open fields, um, or 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 um, you know thinking rethinking housing, uh, public housing, and so it's part of that's existed, but part of it is is doing it in um, such a way that instead of using um, a market dynamic that is basically done for profit. Um, it's still done for profit, but it has a huge twist on the people you involve to do it um, and the results you have and, um, on people's lives because of it. So um, just to make it clear, let me use a couple of examples. Yeah, if, I was going to say. May, if I may. Go yeah, ahead. Yes. Um, so sort of like taking garbage collection in Peru. And, okay, it's something that every country does, uh, some more successfully than others. Um, and and what Albina Ruiz, the fellow, realizes, oh, okay, well, there's a, a market um, dynamic for garbage collection. And uh, we don't have garbage collection in the slum, so, gee, we can just – uh, figure out how to do it, right? And, and get garbage picked up in the slums. But she said, no, 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 no. If we're going to get garbage pick pickups in the slum, let's just rejigger the whole equation to who's picking up the garbage, how we're picking up the garbage, and who's going to benefit from the garbage collection. Right. And so um, she rethought not only the technology to get um, garbage trucks small enough to get up the hills where the slums are located in Peru, in Lima. But she also figured out that all the people that garbage collect uh, for subsistence living called, you know, rag pickers or whatever, and they go through the slums to pick up, they could be put to work. Um, they could be um, the forces behind um, making this a activity that benefits the community um, in multiple ways. Um, and and so in, in such, she created an entire industry, actually, a new industry around garbage collection and recycling that never before existed in Lima. Interesting. Yeah.
This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and author Beverly Schwartz, Ashoka's Vice President of Global Marketing. So, so when we change market dynamics, what we're doing is we're taking maybe an existing market dynamic and then shifting it through some innovation to extend it into an area where it wasn't before. Right. Uh, whereas when you're using market forces to create social value, what we, you may be doing is taking an existing, an existing market and restructuring it so that it produces some social value that it didn't produce before. Do I have exactly. that right? Oh, yeah. thank you. Yes, exactly. Well said. Well said. Terrific. I wonder if you could tell quickly the story of the fellow in Nigeria. That also is a powerful story, I thought. And and what you might know is I dedicated the book launch to him last night. He passed away two weeks ago. Oh, my goodness. I, I did not know that. So I that was devastated. Makes and, uh, it particularly yeah. poignant, yes. He passed away uh, two weeks ago very, very suddenly from complications of diabetes. So ah. um, I'm really glad you asked me to tell the story because it's powerful and I love it. And I loved, I loved him and... Um, um, I'm actually dedicating a lot of the book launching to him. Mm. Um, so um, Isaac um, was, it's a wonderful story and I'll do it quickly. He was um, a security guard who used to protect high level politicians in Nigeria. And b- being in that job, he very often had to wait for very long hours outside the premises or uh, outside the car and whatnot. And he was a huge man. He was six foot seven, and okay. he was really bigger than life. Um, <laughs> and and he could never find a place to go to the bathroom. Uh, and 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 basically, you went in the bushes. But he was so large um, that he could never really hide himself, you know. And 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 he would wear because he was high level security guard. He would wear suits, and he would really get upset about having to you know, sort of go relieve himself in the bushes wearing a suit and, and, you know, you can imagine. Yes. So, so he decided that, um, one day he had a wedding that he had to plant security for. And as fairly common, there were 10,000 guests coming now. Wow. And, and, you know, when he told me the story, I said, are you sure you like one zero one one one, uh, no one zero 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 zero. And he said, yes. That's 10,000 guests, and there were only two toilets accessible. Oh, my goodness. So one, one can richly imagine what that produced. Right, and he was really worried <laughs> security-wise right. when people went into the bush. How was he going to protect them? Right. So it was high-level wedding, high-level politician. So long story short, scoured the country, can't find any portable toilets, um, and decides that this is what his country needs. They need to be... Um, a little bit more civilized in the way their toilet practices. So instead of just starting a mobile toilet business for profit, he decides to 
bring the building of the toilets to Nigeria as an industry. It had never been, mobile toilets have never been built there before. He engages homeless men and at-risk youth and trains them to build them. So number one starts the virtuous cycle here. Right. He then franchises them to single head of household women, of which, by the way, his mother was one. Mm. Um, and and he, he franchises them so with the contract that they must keep these uh, toilets in perfectly working order and spotlessly clean because he wants to give Nigerians um, a really good um, sort of impression on a, having a what the difference is to have a really clean place to you know sort of go do your toileting right. and and then he only takes 50 percent of the pay for use um, and he, he likes to say it was a pay to go uh-huh. <laughs> um, and and um, and the franchisee keeps 50 percent so they're incentivized obviously to keep it clean and nice and and all of that and then that 50 percent is also put as a down payment for them to buy the mobile toilet so they can actually own it wow. so so many of these women ended up leasing 10 you know, 15, sometimes 20 toilets. They had the kids working, helping them. They put the kids to school. They put the kids to the university. Um, so you can see click number two, head of female, um, you know, or single head of household women. And then click number three comes when the children of these um, franchisees come to Isaac, like one of them did, and wanted to ask Isaac's advice about starting a franchise um, street cleaning business in Lagos. And that story blew my mind because how many children growing up in a developing country would ever think about a street cleaning, um, you know, sort of uh, entity um, using a franchise model if they hadn't been uh, introduced to it by a by a social entrepreneur. And, and that's how that cycle keeps on continuing and how the impact of um, innovation um, just keeps on cycling and growing. And to me, that was the essence also of scaling. Right, exactly. My definition of scaling. Not just scaling. It wasn't just scaling his idea, but scaling the whole way he went about his idea, in other words. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, right. And, and the ev- evolution of the idea. And, you know, right. Um, I have to say, last night, there was a question from the audience about scaling, and um, Aletta Margolis was on the stage with me, and she answered it. And and then I said, you know, rippling, the whole essence of rippling is scaling, but but we have to figure out how to measure the imp- impact and the influence that a model or an innovation has on an entire society. Right. Um, but but to me the this son coming this son of a Frenchie coming to yeah. Isaac and wanting to use the model for another totally different innovation is to me scaling. Yeah, it's, I mean it ties into the whole idea of patterns. You know, he obviously could identify the pattern that was at work, right? And then he could replicate the pattern, and that's what scaling is all about. Absolutely. So uh, very rich story. Uh, it's. Really interesting how these stories are so, uh, they just shine such a spotlight and they speak more than sometimes the analysis can speak. Because once you hear the story, you're like, oh, I get it. I I understand it completely. I'd love to try to tackle 
the next two maybe together as a team also, the next two themes, because I do think they're related. This wonderful theme about full citizenship, the idea of you know creating equality and supporting human rights for those who don't seem to have the full measure. And you, you tell some just beautiful stories about people working with street children in India, with the disabled in Germany, autism in Denmark, the story about working with the mentally ill in Argentina, that is such a powerful story. I want you to tell that story. But then also the theme about cultivating empathy. And we know that I I feel, I'm sure you feel the same way, that empathy is behind a lot of that work of full citizenship because people express such a deep caring. They want to be inclusive and they want to lift people up because they have a sense of empathy for their experience. But um, those two themes are just so powerful, and maybe we could turn the page and talk a little bit about those. Oh, I would love to. And I I actually wanted to say that um, cultivating empathy actually runs through all, (laughs) every single fellow's work, because what I also talk, what I talk about in the conclusion is that what I realize is every single fellow in the book had some sort of experience um, which cause them to empathize with a certain type of person and it ended up i found it every when i when i really delved into it i found it in every story that there was something in past history um that made them very empathetic and therefore sort of put them on this path many years later sometimes um to social entrepreneurship um so i want to say that's a theme again these are overlapping themes um but empathy really ran through every single one of them. Yes. Um, but um, so so give me some instructions here, David. How would you like me to? Well, um, you know what? If you could talk about the story of Alfredo Oliveira as, okay. a, as a gateway into the full citizenship discussion, that I found to be just such a compelling story. Well, it, it is um, a part of that having to listen to your community. But here was a um, psychologist who volunteered and worked at um, a very large mental hospital in um, right outside of Buenos Aires. And um, uh, it's magnificent to see that um, he just felt like um, he would leave at the end of the day and the mental patients were no better off. Uh, relating to society, and they just kind of went back to their rooms and shuttered themselves up. And he didn't see any lasting value to having volunteers come and go at the hospital. Um, And so when one of his friends wanted to interview him about, you know, his work at the mental hospital, instead of interviewing, he actually um, brought in very, very rudimentary tape recorder um, and a little microphone microphone. And uh, this was many years ago, by the way, so uh, there was no uh, computers at the time, uh, not the technology we know now. And so, and he decided to ask the mental patients um, what they um, thought about, you know, the hospital and whatever. And he was shocked at what they said, and they didn't talk about that. They talked to, they really talked about some very cogent things going on in the world and and it was a lot of fun and um it, it was pretty interesting so he started to um 
uh, gather these clips. He'd come and, and he'd tape them. And uh, and he'd just put them out uh, on a little radio station, a little, little local radio station, you know. And uh, people started to pick them up in the area, the Buenos Aires area. And uh, a couple of large stations started to say, you know, hey, we're getting, we're playing these clips and, and we're actually getting a lot of callers calling in. And they want to know what's going on and they're kind of intrigued and and you can on, only imagine that this whole thing snowballed into um, uh, three million listeners wow. every Saturday listening to mental patients talk about world issues. Now, you <laughs> say, okay, that's great. such a provocative uh, idea. It's, I know. You, may, you, you just you just hear that idea and you go, where, where can I listen to this? In fact, well, it's such a great idea. I can't believe no one's tried it in the United States because I think it would be equally equally awesome. Well, and, and the big idea was to, when these mental patients got released, and this was um, an old hospital, and they they released, uh, a lot of these people were in the hospital against their will, they were committed by relatives, but when they were released, they were totally unprepared for society. Mm-hmm. So Alfredo's idea was that this connected them, this radio program sort of connected them with the community, and the community with them. Right. So that it was a two-way street here. And and what snowballed was the fact that then people started to call in. And Alfredo decided that he would play back the questions before each session. Again, technology wasn't quite there yet. Um, and, and he would tape the, the questions, play them back so the, the, the mental patients sort of had an idea of that they were being talked to. They were actually being in conversation with people. And then again, this snowballed into when technology was ready, people actually calling in and and the mental patients kind of answering the questions. And, um, and so there was this big sort of connection between community, two communities, so much so that the people in the immediate geographic community of Buenos Aires started to donate um, things to the hospital to make the mental patients' lives better. And one of them was an old beat-up Volkswagen, which they called the mobile crazy unit. And they got permission for the mental patients to actually go outside in it and go around the community. And um, they got so many things donated to the hospital that they decided to donate it back into the community for people at need. So the connections between the mental patients and society... Right. right. Uh, just were amazing. Um, the postscript on this is it attracted not only a movie directed by Francis Ford Coppola, but um, a huge Spanish um, uh, rock group um, uh, came and did a whole album with the patients. Um, and it ended up that worldwide now, they have 12, at the peak, they had 12 million listeners tuning in uh, to hear this program. Um, it was obviously in Spanish, so it was all Spanish-speaking countries, 12 million. Amazing, amazing. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, if you wrote a business plan to to attempt something like that, I'm sure that 99 
out of 100 people would say that will never work. And of course, here it is, you know, at, in retrospect, it's a tremendous success. It, it, to me, it captures so it captures the sense of adventure and ex- exploration and the unintended, the positive unintended consequences of the work of these uh, people and their companions. To just a terrific, terrific story. And, and David, can I say uh, your comment about I can't believe it's not in the United States? Yeah. One of the 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 sort of the reasons I wrote the book was something like that should be picked up more widely. Yes. And I think I think because it's in Spanish and because it hasn't really been written about before. Um, people just don't know about it. And I'm really hoping that part of my motivation for writing the book was that p- these these ideas will become more widespread. Well, and I think it particularly if you look back over human history and the treatment of mentally ill people uh, in other cultures, there's a much greater valuation of, I think, mentally ill people as people who may have access to spiritual resources or insights that are denied, you know, to the general population and, and to marginalize mentally, the mentally ill people in the way that we have is just so wrong. I think many of the greatest thinkers in humanity have been people who have struggled with mental illness. So Right, right. That's uh, a great point. Yeah. So it's a it's a wonderful uh, illustration of, of uh, so many of the ideas in the book. Switching to, to empathy, because we are getting sh- a little short sure. on time, you have a wonderful reflection from Arianna Huffington that leads yes. into the empathy piece. And she talks about an idea articulated by Jonas Salk uh, before he passed away that we're in this transition between two epics. Epic A, which is about survival and competition, and Epic B, which is about collaboration and meaning. I'd love for you to talk about that. And I also want to just to call out this phrase that's in the book, which I think is just so wonderful. It says, she talks about the combustible creativity that results when empathy meets imagination. Just wonderful ideas. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Uh, sure. Yeah, well... Um, I have to say that I thought she did a wonderful job on that piece, and it it, it really um, opened up a lot of new thoughts in my mind as well. Um, but I, I really think there is, and um, and actually Bill Drayton spoke about this recently as well, there is really this push and pull between uh, competition and collaboration. Right. And I think that from a point of empathy, if you look at that, um, then competition becomes opportunities and for collaboration and competition also becomes an opportunity to do things better. Um, and if you do empathize with people you compete with, it, 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 it seems to um, make it a gentler world um, and it makes it a much more forgiving world. Um, and I think the whole point about what Ariana was writing about and the section um, is that we so often get so wrapped up in our daily lives and our daily annoyances uh, and irritations that we just don't stop to think, you know, is this really true? Am I, is this really happening? Is this really true? What, what does it seem like from the other person's point of view? And I know, I know it sounds so touchy feely, um, but it, it, it sort of, I have to say after I wrote this whole section and, and did all my research on it, it, it's, it made a profound difference in my own life and the way I, I deal with it. And I, I thought I was an empathetic person all along, 
but I, I don't think I really practiced it um, in a daily in a daily way, in a, a, a life life story way. And so um, I think what she wrote, um, and, and by the way, I just want to also say that when I asked her to write the piece on empathy, I think she was taken aback mm. that of all people, I would ask her to write on empathy. But I knew she was interested in it, and I knew there was a side of her that I thought she wanted to come out in a way as, you know, part of her side as a, as a really savvy business person. Right. Uh, and, and a very uh, excellent critic of, you know, media and in the media and things like that. And then another side where she really is a caring, empathetic person. And she actually said that she was thrilled to be able to write about this topic. And, and, and I think that um, it says a lot about when you don't really know people well, you don't really think that they have a side of them that um, is empathetic, and yet I think most people do. Right. And I think, I think you just have to tease it out. And uh, I, I really just think, and again, it sounds so, oh, so Pollyanna when I say that um, if we could all be five degrees more empathetic in our daily life, right. um, we, we would all have a much better way of living. Absolutely. And you, the stories you tell in that section, you know, about the work of Mary Gordon, I had the pleasure to interview Mary earlier in the month. And I've known Mary, of course, as, uh, through the fellowship also, but just such an inspiring person. Her work is so inspiring. And then Ibu Patel. And I think when you really get to meet these people, you see just how non- how specific the work is, how specific and impactful in a way that when you think, oh, empathy, it's like you say, touchy-feely, you realize that this isn't touchy-feely. This is really where the rubber meets the road in so many domains. And I think you bring that to life so well in this part of the book. Thank you. So we're drawing close to the end of our time, and I'd like to come to the fundamental metaphor of the book, which is very appropriate and compelling and I'd like to read a passage or just a, just a, a sentence that you wrote you you talk at the end of the book about what rippling is about and you say that rippling is throwing a stone into the pool of social change by shaking the foundations of poverty inequality and injustice and spreading sustainable system change solutions that meet the necessities of the present by giving those in need the ability to determine their own future. So there's a little social entrepreneurship change-making poetry from your book. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> and, um, and tell us, uh, just tell us a little bit about that. You know, rippling, the big change, how does this all come together? Um, I, I just think that, again, um, I, I just saw that very few people are talking about you know, sort of how ideas spread and how um, involved people and change makers need to be to spread the idea. And if you can't spread an idea, you can't start a movement. If you can't start a movement, you can't change social systems. And I just felt like I wanted to get away from, you know, sort of bean counting measurements. Um, there, there was a, a line I did not put in the book about how do you measure synergy? Right. Um, what is the impact of synergy and how do you measure it? And I and I think that is the answer to your question, David. You know, it's sort of rippling is all about creating synergy and and the power and, and synergy. 
the power of synergy lies between connecting the pieces. Um, and, and I think what I was trying to say in the book was there's an awful lot of synergy and power being created and we have to connect those pieces um, and we have to understand how strong that all is. And the hope is that people will read these stories and become part of that movement. Uh, yeah, I, I'm hoping that the people that mostly read the book are those who are standing on the periphery of social change, always wanted to get involved, ha have empathy, think they could do something, but they need a little nudge. And, and I hope the book is the nudge. Great. Well, I think we could close this out with a quote from the end of your book from Brian Andreas. Uh -oh. He says, most people don't know there are angels whose only job is to make sure that you don't get too comfortable and fall asleep and miss your life. And I'd like to suggest that you, Beverly, are one of the angels. <laughs> oh, thank you, David. <laughs> thank you. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, I, I loved it. I appreciate it very much. And thank you. And tell, tell us again, if we want to get this book, it's available on Amazon.com. Yes, and because I, I want to be fair, it's also on BarnesandNoble.com. BarnesandNoble. Um, and hopefully it'll be in your local bookstore. So if you want to support local bookstores, do it. Terrific. Thank you so much, Beverly. Thank you, David. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.